Welcome to episode 18 of the Boss Podcast. I'm Kurt Bailey and this week we have Carl Ryden, who's manager of Let Computers Do What Computers Do Best So Humans Are Free To Do What They Do Best, led to the AI platform Andy being developed by Precision Lender. In this talk from Boss 2018, Carl will show how he came to realise as he grew Precision Lender that a relentless focus on people, employees and customers was the key to profitable growth and he's watched the company grow to over 100 people with staff turnover of just 3%. Welcome to the Business of Software podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Carl Ryden is a proven professional with a unique breadth and depth of experience and a passion for technology, product and business development, a deep understanding of how capital, talented people, ideas and hard work can be brought together to create both products that customers value and the infrastructure necessary to consistently deliver those products. Having co-founded Precision Lender in 2009, he is now the EVP and General Manager following the Q2 acquisition of Precision Lender in 2019. When Precision Lender developed Andy, they thought about intelligence augmentation rather than AI. They focused on the user experience, customer jobs to be done, and the incredible power of personification to build their most successful product. Happy listening. Um, What an honor it is to speak in this community. It's one I've been a part of for quite some time. We started our company in uh, May of 2009 with quite literally a blank string and a blinking cursor. And as we're working through building our product. We released it in January 1st, 2010. And since then, we've added probably 250 banks around the world. For a while, it was about a bank a week. And we were in the throes of it. In the fall of 2010, the, we went to our first bank, uh, first business of software conference. And the argument I made to my co-founders, I've been following business of software for a long time, even back to when it wasn't a conference. It was just a message board that Joel Spolsky ran back in the day for folks building software companies. And the argument I made to them was, um, if it's not worth a few thousand dollars for us to come together and learn our craft and be better at our craft, then we probably ought to get out of business, you know? And so we came to each of the business of software conferences for about nine years. And at each time we'd come to the conference and we would be faced with some kind of huge problem that we were struggling with. And it seemed almost eerie that each time we showed up, um, there was a talk or a speaker or someone who was speaking directly to the problem we were facing. often kidded, Mark, have you bugged our offices or my phone lines or something like that? He said no. Um, <laughs> we, um, telling our story, company's grown really well. We've doubled every year. We're about 120 employees spread around the world. Now we're opening an office over here in the EU. Um, we've opened one in Sydney, Australia. We have one in Cary and one in Charlotte, North Carolina. As you can tell my accent, I'm not from around here. Um, but I put on the screen, instead of the chart, the obligatory chart that kind of goes up and to the right, and we got a lot of those, I put on there our values. Um, this came out of one of the early conferences we came to, boss conferences in the U.S. We were struggling. Uh, we had made a bad hire. Um, we had decided on the trip up there to let this person go. And so we said about how do we not ever let this happen again? And we saw a talk by a guy named Mikey Trafton who's coming back to Boss U.S. this year and I've become friends with over the years. How to build a world-class culture in uh, three not-so-easy steps. And it's figure out what's important to you, pay attention to it. Uh, were the two not so easy steps and the third one, I don't remember what that was now. But um, he asked he asked us, uh, one of the tasks was, when you write down your values of your company, uh, they should be 
the only things you'll ever fire someone for. So when someone asks you, Allison, how do you, how do you know when the red line is crossed? How do you know when, when is too much? Um, that, I wanted to scream out, this is how we do it. Um, is these are the only things you'll ever fire someone. It forces you to be expansive, but also very narrow. Um, and it also puts you in a case where you don't end up firing for them very much because you hire against them. Right? We punch people in the face with them when they come in the door. Uh, it's the first thing we show employees. It's the first thing we show um, prospective customers. It's the first thing we show uh, prospective investors because if for whatever reason they're not going on board with this, they're not a good fit for us. And the last person folks interview with at our company is me. And I spend a lot of time with them. I, uh, I spend some time with them. I say, um, uh, my job isn't to assess your capabilities. Uh, people smarter than me have already done that or you wouldn't be in my office. What I'm here to do is tell you that this is who we are. And you're either going to fall in two camps. You're going to go, I love that. I've been waiting for this my entire life. Or you're going to go, I'm scared to death by that. I'm going to be exposed. Either one is a perfectly wonderful outcome for both of us. Um, so I just let them know we mean it, and that really helps a lot with our hiring process. So each year I come to Boss, and uh, Peldy, where are you? I walk up to Peldy as a matter of ritual and say, you're my hero. So I had this one. I said, you know, who has two thumbs and is my hero? This guy right here. So that's Peldy. So what I want to do today is I'm going to talk a little about Iron Man suits and Terminators. We built a product that serves commercial bankers, um, commercial relationship managers. And it's, they're an interesting lot. And again, we've grown quite rapidly. And about two years ago, we came up with the idea of building um, into our system, I call it an AI. The word AI is, I think, horribly overused. It means everything and nothing. And it's really a marketing term, which means whatever computers uh, can't do until they can. So, um, we, so uh, we built Andy, who is our uh, intelligent virtual assistant. What I'm going to do is take you through three stories. One is a story about a guy named Doug Engelbart. Anybody know who Doug Engelbart is? Peldy knows, a few people know. The killer demo guy. Killer demo guy. So it's amazing, I discovered him as I was putting together this talk a few weeks ago, and I did not, um, didn't know really who he was, and I was amazed because I've lived in this world for so long. So I thought I'd tell his story. Then I'm going to tell his story. Uh, I'll move to our story of how we built our intelligent virtual system, system within our software as a means of intelligence augmentation. And the idea of intelligence augmentation is what led me to Doug Engelbart, because he was one of the <coughs> forefathers of that. And then I'm going to take you through what we've learned in building it. And hopefully there will be some lessons that you guys can take away, and then we'll finish up with some questions. <coughs> is that cool? So uh, this is Doug Engelbart. Um, nearly 50 years ago, he was actually getting ready to come on stage before 1,000 engineers in an auditorium in San Francisco to give uh, a, a demo. And it was a packed auditorium. Doug was absolutely no Steve Jobs. He was a shy, unassuming engineer. Um, he actually grew up in a small town outside of Portland, Oregon, during the Great Depression. And during that time, he actually went to school as an electrical engineer at, at Oregon State University. He went to Oregon State to study electrical engineering because it was the midst of World War II, and he knew he was probably going to get drafted. And he had kind of figured out that if he was a radio technician, a radar technician, probably less likely to get shot at, right? So that was his whole thesis of going into electrical engineering. He went in there, and sure enough, he got drafted, got drafted into the Navy, went to boot camp, studied how to be an electronics technician. He's getting shipped out in San Francisco. He goes under the Bay Bridge. He's on a big boat heading to the Philippines. Everyone on the boat is scared to death they're going to have to invade Japan, and that was going to be a horrific thing because they've heard the news of Okinawa and all these places. And then they get the, uh, they hear the, 
seven hills of San Francisco light up with cheers on the boat. And the captain walks out and says, the war is over. Um, we've, we've, Japan surrendered. So he says, all the guys on the boat scream back to him, turn it around, you know. And, and he didn't because it's the Navy. Um, they went for 10 miles an hour for 38 days to the Philippines. He finished time in the Philippines, read a bunch of books while he was there, learned a lot. Came back and finished his um, electrical engineering degree at Oregon State. Went down, worked for the predecessor of NASA down in uh, Silicon Valley. Well, it's now Silicon Valley. What it was then wasn't Silicon Valley. And he woke up one day, and he had a, um, uh, actually not woke up. He had a job working at the Ames Research Center. He was driving to work one day. He had just got engaged to his wife, who was his wife for many, many years. And he now had a good job, steady job. He had a, a loving wife and a ready to live happily ever after. He's like, well, is this it, right? During the Great Depression, that was kind of what everybody wanted. If you had that, you were golden. Um, but he had read this book over in, um, in the Philippines in the Red Cross Library about how to set goals for your career and what you wanted to do. So he had an epiphany. And his job, he wanted to change the world. So when he decided to change the world, he said, how is he going to do that? And one of the, way he, the only way he saw to do that was to raise the collective intelligence of all human beings. It's a pretty bold goal. He was young enough to believe he could do it and young enough to be dumb enough to think he can, which I think is also part of the entrepreneurial um, disease, is you have to have both of those things. And he figured that the best way to do that was to use these new things called computers that had just come out and use them as a means of amplifying human intelligence to increase human collaboration. <coughs> so he's back on stage at this auditorium. He opened his presentation with these remarks. And it's funny to see the presentation. You can watch it on YouTube. We'll talk about what it's called in a minute. In your office, you as an intellectual worker, were, what if uh, in your office you as an intellectual worker were supplied with a computer display backed by a computer? Those things were different in that day. That was alive for you all day. It was instantly responsive to every action you have. How much value would you derive from that? He then went on. Uh, he stepped on the stage. He had a headset on. They had run 30 miles of wire from downtown San Francisco to his uh, office at Stanford Research Labs. He had a live video conference. He goes on to demonstrate mouse, a keyboard, a computer display, a graphical user interface with Windows, um, real-time video conferencing, real-time document editing, a file system with version control. And all this was 16 years. This was 16 years before the Ma Apple Macintosh, 35 years before, Google, before Skype, 40 years before Google Docs. Um, and he felt, he really thought that if he did this, he really saw computers as not a, the tool they were at the time. If you think back in 1968, computers were just massive calculators. In fact, they took the name from the people. If you remember the uh, Hidden Figures movie, um, they took the name from the people who just calculated stuff all day, right? They were just massive calculators. You'd feed in punch cards, they'd do calculations, they spit out these reports. You'd take the reports around and hand them out to folks who'd never read them who would never read them, and then they'd go back. At the time, computers were only owned by the largest corporations and governments. They were the size of a room. They were fed by punch cards. He thought if he could show them, show the people, show the engineers in the audience that these things are more than just calculators that generate reports. These things are tools that can transform the human experience and really improve humanity and help us solve some of our largest problems. Um, that he'd have something. He thought hundreds of engineers would show up and line up after the talk to to, uh, to help him join that cause. He called the system the online system, which proves he's a great engineer, because that's a dumb name. And then he, he made the acronym the NLS, <laughs> is what he called it, right? Which, if you really want to go deep on proving that you're not Steve Jobs, 
um, call it the come up with a stupid name and then an acronym that doesn't even map to the name. <laughs> but remember, after at the end of the presentation, the audience was truly awestruck. They gave him a standing ovation, and Engelbart expected all hundreds to line up and talk to him. After the presentation was over, after the standing ovation, uh, most of them filed out of the room, quietly um, walked away. Later, a reporter who was researching this came back and asked him, why did you guys do it? Why didn't you guys, he showed you the future, right? This was at the 40th anniversary of the, this was called the mother of all demos is what it's been come, uh, come to know, to be known as. At the 40th anniversary of that, which now they have anniversaries of this each year, you know, each 10 years or so, uh, Doug Engelbart's passed away now. Um, at, at, each, at each reunion of this, the reporter went through and, and uh, asked the folks who were in the room, says, why didn't you, he showed you the future, why didn't you do something with it? And it was too big of a leap for them. They had a stack of punch cards to feed into the computers to do what they had been told to do, and they had too much, too much of a day job, right? And it was too big of a leap for them. Alan Kay, I mean, you know who Alan Kay is? Um, invented object oriented programming, uh, one of the fathers of uh, Silicon Valley. Winner, later went on to run Xerox Park, who actually ended up hiring away a lot of uh, Doug Engelbart's best engineers, actually says this. He says, I don't know what Silicon Valley will do when they run out of Doug's ideas. <laughs> now, if you back up um, to a little bit earlier, um, 1962, Doug Engelbart actually ran an experiment where he taped a brick to a pencil. You know, This is what DARPA money will do for you um, when, <laughs> when you... When you uh, Cold War scare and all the other things, right? But what he was doing, he was trying to prove a point. The point was, is that he studied tools and how humans use tools. And using tools is nothing new for humans at all. Um, we don't have fangs, we don't have claws, so we invent spears and arrows. And those spears and arrows not only allow us to do things we couldn't do, but they change who we are as humans in society. This is why when archaeologists go dig up a society, what do they look for? They find the tools, because the tools folks use speak to who they were and what they valued and what they did. He taped it to the pencil because one of the things he saw as one of the original tools, one of the most transformative tools in human history was written language. Uh, written language allowed us to transfer knowledge across time and space. Humans don't have great long-term memories. We're deficient in a lot of areas, so we create tools to augment our capabilities. And this is what he was, this was Doug's uh, motivation for doing everything he did. And human language what he found is when you de-augmented human lang written language, when you typed a brick to the pencil um, and you made it hard to just write sentences, all the higher level tools that are built upon that, ability to form sentences, coherent thoughts, um, to tell stories, all those start to break apart. When you make the lower level tools really hard, when you de-augment the lower level tools, you lose all the higher level tools, um, was one of the points he was trying to make there. Now this may sound funny, but I sell to banks, right? And within a bank, within large corporations, most of the systems that are built inside those enterprises are not tools, they're tasks. They're built by the guys who were feeding the punch cards into the calculators, right? What they do is I need to collect data from you to generate a report so I can give to someone else, right? It's not a tool that helps you achieve more. At a, one, at a very large bank, I won't name the name, for a relationship manager at that bank, a commercial, to get a deal done, there's 140 different systems that RM has to touch just to get a deal done. And, and when you ask them, how many of those are valuable? How many of those help you make progress um, in, in your life and in your job and trying to build better, 
build better relationships with your customers, trying to be more valuable to your customers so, so they'll in turn be more valuable to the bank. None of them. They're tasks, not tools. So I want to talk about digital transformation, and this comes back to the innovation theater comment from earlier. There's a lot of banks that we work with, big banks around who have uh, big companies all around who are under, undergoing digital transformation. It's a word that's also somewhat uh, sullied, I think, in that it's, it kind of means everything and, and nothing at the same time. But I want to talk about uh, digital transformation in the guise of Doug Engelbart and Dinglebart, oh, sorry, Engelbart. That's funny to say his name that way. Um, Engelbart had what he saw the ABCs of, of innovation. Have you guys ever heard of the ABCs of innovation? Um, so Doug broke the world into three activities or processes, he called them. Uh, A processes are the human and the tool systems that you use to do what you do every day, right? It's just the, the culture, the processes, the policies, the procedures, how you do what you do. B processes are, are the systems and the human and tool systems that make you better at A. So that's the lean, the Six Sigma, the c continuous improvement, all the things that you do, the learning management systems, other things that make you better at A. But Doug also saw a process C system. A process C system is a system that helps you get better at B. It's getting better at getting better. And one of the things that Doug saw as unique in humans was their ability to build tools to improve tools, to get better at getting better. And this is also why we'll talk about in a minute, uh, Doug uh, is known for Engelbart's law. Before Moore's law, there was Engelbart's law, which was the intrinsic rate of all human improvement is exponential. And the reason he believed that to be so was because you know, humans were uniquely capable of getting better at getting better, building tools that build upon tools. Just like um, language and literature and poetry and uh, all sorts of things build upon the written language that we have, um, you now can build tools to get better at getting better. He called it bootstrapping. Bootstrapping was his process. Is you build a tool, the tool changes who we are as humans. Those humans then can improve the tool system further. Then it improves the human system. Then it improves the tool system. And continually you get better at getting better. Now, I like to tell the story of maps in a digital transformation sense. It's because if you think about, you can take it all the way back to the Vikings, right? The Viking, any Vikings in the room? No? Um, it's in Europe, so I gotta ask. Um, they, <laughs> they come here a lot. Um, the, the Vikings, they would communicate through how to travel through language, through storytelling. They would say, you need to go to the land of ice and turn left and you hit the Greenland or whatever to get to the U.S., what is now the U.S., or that was actually Canada. Um, <laughs> but then you develop written language and you develop mapping tools, and they would develop maps and pictorial maps with, with language on it. And then we've done the same, and we took the maps, and then we came up with GPS so we can actually know where we are on the map, Right. Then we said, someone said, well, hey, why don't we take the map and put it inside the GPS? And that took us to Garmin. And now we, get, we can see where we are on the map. We've digitized the map. And all that, well, I think, was process B type improvement of just making, improving the overall mapping and navigation process. But then you go to Waze. And I think Waze is fundamentally a process C innovation, as Engelbart saw it. Every person who uses Waze makes Waze better for the next person. It becomes a cumulative effect, right? It becomes... It's deep in process C of getting better at getting better where the system in in inherently has a feedback loop that makes it cumulative, which generates exponential growth in value. Does that make sense? So this is uh, just to prove Engelbart's law. I pulled up, uh, this is GDP for the UK from 1270 on. I don't know what's significant about 1270 I'm from the US. Um, but you can see Engelbart's law has proven, believe it or not, 
as much as uh, Mark likes to complain about uh, the current state of affairs in the UK, probably no better time in the US or wherever, but there's probably no better time in the world to be alive than, than, than right now. And the thing is, is if you zoom out on, on this over any period of time, you see the same kind of effect. And I think that is Engelbart's law um, in action. So now I want to shift to our journey. So again, I talked about we make software for banks, right? And uh, I want to talk about our journey to Andy and how we developed Andy, which is our um, virtual assistant, intelligent virtual assistant. And this is our application back when we first started coming to Boss. Um, you don't need to get into the details, but this is how an RM would, a commercial relationship manager might price a new opportunity. $1.5 million deal, different terms. As they change anything on the screen, it's constantly popping up these little dots to tell them how to make the deal work better, right? And this is before Andy. We called this the profitability wizard, which was a dumb name that no one ever but us used. Um, our customers would call this the magic dots, right? And where this came from is most of the times the system we were displacing was an Excel spreadsheet, right? And the Excel spreadsheet was highly complex, built, spent lots of money on, but the RMs, if they liked it at all, which they typically didn't, the one thing they did like about it is that it was immediate. That when I change one thing, I can immediately see the impact of it so they could easily see what drove the value of deals. Well, what, happened, what would happen with these sheets is typically the internal IT folks at the bank would take over and they say, oh no, you can't have an Excel sheet, you need a forms-based application. So they'd spend millions of dollars and they'd build this application <laughs> where you fill out a screen, hit next, fill out another screen, hit next, fill out a third screen, hit next. It comes to the last screen and says, that doesn't work. And the arm's gotta go back, 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 back. What have I gotta tell this stupid thing to let me get this deal done? And all of a sudden it becomes a task, not a tool. You've kind of de-augmented the entire process. So we said, we can solve that. Um, one of our missions when we started, when I was thinking about kind of what is it we're doing here, back in the early days of Precision Lender, it was how do we do everything that computers can do well, well, so that humans can do the things that they uniquely do well, well. So we wanted to enable better conversations between the RMs and their, and their customers, right? And one of the things we found is, well, shucks, we can solve for all these things of what it would take to make the deal work. So we put the magic dots on the screen. What turned out to be really valuable is not just showing them each of the ways, but we show them all of them at once. And now every RM immediately knows the relative importance of every deal term to the bank, so they can focus on what's important to the customer and find ways to make positive trades. And this is what unlocks an enormous amount of value. Our median client, our median banking client um, improves their net interest margin by 29 basis points, just so you know, uh, for a bank, for a large US bank, uh, it's about a million dollars per basis point per business day um, in terms of value that creates to, on their portfolio of $600 billion. It goes back to one of my accounting professors. Um, I went to business school, um, and the accounting professor there um, said there's two ways in the world to make money. is You take little numbers and you make them into big numbers, or you take big numbers and you change them by a really small amount. We picked the, the latter uh, case of that. So we built this, and, and, it was, and folks liked it. They never called it the profitability wizard. We were even dumb enough to put a trademark by it, and I'm making fun of um, Doug Engelbart with this NLS. But what happened was we had this guy. This guy is at, uh, Andy Max, and Andy Max was, um, is a, a wonderful human being. He works at the First National Bank of Omaha in Omaha, Nebraska. He uh, purchased our system, rolled it out, and then he would individually work with the RMs um, and coach them to do better. He would see, hey, Joe just did a deal like this last week. You really ought to think about doing this. Or Jim did a deal this way. You ought to think about doing this. And he was being that 
transference between and kind of cross-pollination. And Andy would call us up and he would say, I was just working with this RM and he, he had this situation. Could you add a magic dot to the screen that when you see them doing that, nudge them this way. Tell them they ought to think about this. And we were, I was sitting in my office, I was talking, I think it was one of our, I think it was Marcy who I was talking to, one of our engineers. And we were working through the list, latest list of magic dots from Andy. Um, and I was told Marcy, I said, Andy makes our product 100 times more valuable to that bank. Wouldn't it be great if every bank had an Andy? And that was what led us to, well, shit, why don't we do that, right? <laughs> why don't we um, try, to, try to give every bank an Andy? Could we do that? And so what we did um, is this happened two years ago almost when we had the idea. Um, and then we started building it. And in January 2017, we launched Andy, and we said every precision lender user now has their own pricing analyst. Um, her name's Andy. She's new on the job. She learns quickly. Um, she works 24-7, never sleeps. She sees every deal at the bank, the entire portfolio, how it's evolving. And she monitors your relationships and alerts you to threats and opportunities of things you can do. And you can also ask Andy questions, and she'll give you answers and guide you through how to use the software and all this stuff. And, and uh, the other thing that we made it is completely extensible. We completely copied um, Amazon in this respect in that it's, we had an Andy skills kit, right, where you can actually build your own skills for Andy. So all the things, the magic dots that Andy Max would ask us to add, he can now add himself. He can add a quick little skill that says, if you see him doing this, tell him to do this. Now, it turns out, we thought when we first did this, we thought we'll be able to do some really fancy AI stuff because we have a lot of data. Right now, um, we price about $600 billion worth of commercial deals through Precision Lender each year, and that's doubling about every three or six months. Um, we see an entire portfolio of commercial loans, deposits, and other fee-based business at banks uh, that's about $250 billion, which if we were a bank, we'd be the fourth largest bank in the U.S., slightly bigger than Citigroup, which is kind of amazing. And when we first thought, we said, we can use the data we have to train things, to, to predict churn, to predict the utilization on lines of credit, to predict which sort of products this sort of, for a customer like this in an industry like this with a relationship like this at the bank, what sort of things might they, might they find attractive that, that the RM could talk to them about. What turned out to be, and we did those, we built those, what turned out to be even more valuable, I think, was some of the really mundane things, the things the... Uh, the AI nerds, the data science folks might turn their nose up at and go, that's not real AI. Simple heuristics, right? It was, if you see them doing this, just tell them to do this. Tell them to consider this. And those simple tactical kind of coaching them through using the application turned out to be enormously valuable um, uh, in the application. So what have we learned? And this is the part where, where I'm trying to give you the takeaways of the case study and things we've learned. One thing I'll tell you, two things. If you want to know how to start a, a business selling into the enterprise, um, I would say start at the customer. Find a business that makes good money, right? Because if you're selling to somebody who doesn't have any money, that's going to be a difficult slog. But find a business that makes good money. Find, start at their customers. Work backward into that business. When you first hit the biggest, most gargantuan spreadsheet, stop there. Build a SaaS application. <laughs> right? You, you'll, you'll do really well. Um, the other piece is um, when you build that SaaS application, um, find your Andy. Ours was Andy Max. And then take that person and embed them in the software. And we actually, 
we, we may, we, I saw Andy two weeks ago and uh, talked to him and, and thanked him again for, for guiding us down the right path of showing us the example, but actually trying to find a way to translate it. And how do we put Andy in our software, right, is, is really what a lot of our, what, a lot of things we do. So what have we learned? So one, uh, context is king. You have to narrow the context and user interface and user experience matter immensely. Now, um, AI, um, any kind of AI, machine learning, whatever, is, is basically an uh, idiot savant. It's very good at a very narrow thing, but it's not good across things. And there's actually a, a theory in AI called the no free lunch theory, which exactly says this. It can be good at a narrow thing, but not good at a lot of things, right? And, and, and as soon as you try to make it wide, it gets very difficult. If you narrow the context, Andy is not Alexa Andy, or Siri. Andy can't, you know, book a movie for you or anything like that, but Andy can price the snot out of a commercial loan, right? And, and once you narrow the context, things get really, really easier. So if you can narrow the context, um, it helps a lot. The second thing is the user interface, and particularly the user experience, matters a lot. You notice we had to have that real-time feedback. So as the RM is going through and making changes in the application, and we thought about it just truly as we personified Andy into the app. And we said, we need Andy to be able to see. We need Andy to be able to look over their shoulder. I don't mean see in the pixels. So every time you change, if you change the loan amount, if you change the rate, if you change the collateral, if you add in deposits or bring in other fee-based business, Andy sees every move they make and can correlate that with the outcomes they produce, right? So now you have, you can see the full user experience. You can see the full everything they make, do and ground that to outcomes. That's what gives you labeled contextual data that you can use to actually uh, coach better solutions. Not all data is created equal. This is the second premise that labeled behavioral data is most valuable. So um, if you want to train a system to make suggestions to the users, you have to be able to see what the users are doing and see what outcomes are produced. If you, if you, that's the labeled bit of the data and the behavior, what behaviors led to that outcome. So then I coach them on different behaviors. Most of the data uh, that exists within a bank or even within large corporates is not this, and no amount of big data projects are ever going to fix that. So if you think about, like, um, with Waze, right? Waze, every interaction makes it better. That Every user, every interaction makes it better for every other user. In our system, every opportunity that's priced, every relationship that we see makes it better for every other user, right? How do you get that process C loop going? And you have to be able to ground it to label behavioral data. And I think ultimately you have to, if you, you have to build it organically, and the only way you can build it organically is to narrow the context, right, as a practical matter. Nobody actually wants artificial intelligence. They just want intelligence. And I think this is incredibly true. None of our RMs give a darn that it's, whether it's AI or not, right? The guy, the, the, the smug dude, PhD, with a coffee cup standing near your door, going, well, that's not really AI. They don't care about him, right? And it is typically him, so I don't feel I'm being bad about that. Um, you want to, simple heuristic-driven insights are really powerful. They drive early value. They establish delivery pathways, which are most important. I'll talk about that in a minute. And they establish success metrics and set the bar. So they establish, like, if somebody later wants to do a recurrent neural network deep learning system, well, you got to do better than the simple heuristic. If, if you can't do better than the simple heuristic, stop, right? So I at least have set the bar. And then you can go find, so we actually go find, who are the folks who manage relationship managers when the bank, who are the best coaches? What do they tell them to do, right? And then we just see what works for, 
see what works best and spread it to the rest. It's a simple equation. And folks find that quite magical. And that's why we call Amplify the Human in the Loop. And this is where I come back to the title of the talk, Build Iron Men Suits, Not Terminators. How do we augment humans to make them better? Um, not try to replace them and displace them because there are actually is, there are a lot of things that humans do uniquely well that machines don't do well. And by the way, if you want to know what things those are, really if you look at our education system, it takes us 18 years to learn mathematics, right? Computers learn it that quick. But when we're three years old, we can catch a ball and we can converse. We can understand emotional sentiment. What's really easy for humans is really hard for computers. What's really hard for humans is really easy for computers. This is chocolate and the peanut butter. We need to make, put this together and make it work. So build Iron Man suits, not Terminators. The last thing is I'm an engineer. I have um, electrical engineer, which the joke is uh, you can't have a geek without a double E. Um, the converse is also true but more difficult to prove. Uh, that's if you really want to get nerdy with a joke. Um, but we built Andy, and Andy truly is marketing. It's photons, neurons, just a way of framing it and thinking about it. And it's amazed me. It is relatable and human. Um, when I go in and talk to a room full of RMs, if I talk to them about machine learning and all different, you know, conversational interfaces and blah, 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 I tell them, look, Andy, Andy was going to help you. And Andy's going to see everything that's going on and help coach you to a better outcome. And they'll get up out of the room and go, God, I need an Andy, you know? Um, where if I talked about machine learning, they would just glaze over and go to sleep and I'd lose them, right? The other piece, we're big fans of jobs to be done. How many of you do jobs to be done? Um, it really is a fantastic way of, you know, so uh, no one wants a hole. They want, they, they hire, no one wants a drill bit. They want a hole. So why do you want a hole? I want a hole to put a light. Why do you want a light? I want to put a lamp by my bed. Why do you want a lamp by your bed? So I can read in bed. How about I give you a Kindle with a backlight? You know, and once you go through the five whys or so, you can start uncovering the job to be done. What is fascinating to me about the personification of Andy is we used to have a proliferation of questions, of, of feature requests, and Corey here can tell you about these, of folks, could you put a button here? Could you put a button here? I need a report that tells me this. I need a report that or a dashboard that tells me this. And then what you do is you'd ask them, well, why do you want a button there? And you <coughs> run through the file, or why do you need that reporter? Why do you need that? What are you going to do differently once you know what that report tells you? Why don't we just have it do that? You know, the hack that happens, the mental hack that happens when you personify it, they don't tell you to put, in there, put a button there. They tell you, could Andy do this for me? Could Andy do this for me? And it actually cuts straight to the job to be done. It's almost like this human hack that takes place in their brain, and it cuts straight to that. And the last thing is it humanizes the machine instead of mechanizing the human. And, and I think that is something that you really ought to work to do. Um, I asked this question of folks, and I will ask it here. How many of you are concerned that AI is going to destroy jobs and displace workers? I mean, don't be shy. I mean, now, how many of you are concerned that AI will displace you from your job and, and not allow you to <laughs> mark? <laughs> Typically, when I ask this, there's a lot of questions, hands that go up for the first one and not many that go up for the second one. And what you find is, I'll say, well, it wouldn't happen for me because I'm a knowledge worker. I use creativity, blah, 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 and I'm truly doing human work. Well, who are you concerned about? Well, I'm concerned about the folks who are doing repetitive manual labor that robotics will take out of their, you know, that you're worried about them losing a job. But in reality, were you worried about them having a job that really wasn't fit for a human to start with? Right? And I, I talked about this with somebody recently. I said, um, we used to live in a world where 
we would interview humans to see if they're worthy of a job. I think where we're going to head to is a world where um, we're going to ask ourselves continually, is this a job worthy of a human? And I think that's an interesting parallel. Like the fact that somebody's doing the same thing all day, every day, um, is that a, a, a job that truly is worthy of the, the dignity of a human? Is something that, just a different way of thinking about it, that's less fearful and probably won't make it into the news because of that. Uh, here's the cool part I want to talk about. There is an intelligence augmentation value chain or an AI value chain. And to win, you have to implement the entire chain. And most projects die at the last mile uh, of AI. And we'll explain what that means in a minute. This is a guy, uh, AJ Agrawal. He's a professor at the University of Toronto, uh, econ economics professor who studies AI systems and those things. And he maps out what he calls the anatomy of a task, where you take data and you generate a prediction. That prediction, combined with human judgment, leads to an action. That action produces an outcome. But you then look at the actions and the outcomes and feed it back to make better predictions. And so his, he, has a, his, uh, he has a great paper on this um, describing the anatomy of task and what, when computers first came out, they made calculations almost free. Um, now with machine learning, prediction is becoming almost free. And that actually moves the value down the chain. That whenever you have a value chain, whenever the value of a complement falls dramatically, the value of its other complements go way up, right? And we've seen this throughout history. Next one is I want to talk about a guy named Gordon Ritter. Uh, Gordon Ritter is a partner and a founder of Emergence Capital Partners out in Silicon Valley and a good friend. Um, Gordon, 20 years ago, uh, his firm is small and thesis-driven. Uh, he's not an investor in our business, but a good friend. Um, his firm is thesis-driven. His first thesis 20 years ago was Enterprise SaaS is, going to uh, SaaS is going to take over the enterprise. That was his thesis. He invested a million dollars, the first million dollars, into a little company called Salesforce.com and did rather well. His second thesis about 10 years ago was that the first wave of SaaS was horizontal, Salesforce, NetSuite, these things. The next wave of SaaS will be vertical, and it'll be far bigger than the, the last. He put $6 million on a $20 million pre into a company called Viva Solutions. Uh, Viva went public um, seven years later at a six, the three billion dollar valuation. Six, six billion dollar valuation was, was three billion between friends. Um, never having touched the six million dollars, um, and I know Gordon and Peter Gassner, the CEO there, through Gordon quite well. Um, and that was a vertical SaaS solution built for the uh, um, life sciences industry. So like. GlaxoSmithKline, those guys use it, highly regulated. Um, they built a vertical-specific solution. His current thesis is what he calls coaching networks or the coaching cloud. And what he says is that um, you're going to build, you're going to see these networks emerge where um, people do just do what they do, right? The machine sees what they do, does what it needs to do with that data, and then coaches them to do it better. And so you'll see this gathering, uh, comparing, coaching, and then you see what the human does and you feed it back into the loop. So you gather what all the humans do, compare it to what the best humans do, grounded to outcomes, coach the other ones to be better, see which, back to aggregals, see which actions are taking place and, and feed it back. So one of the examples of Gordon's companies is a company called Chorus.ai. Has anybody heard of this one? So uh, what Chorus does, it listens in on sales calls, um, understands the language, 
extracts out to-dos and next items and follow-ups, fills in Salesforce, the CRM system, for the salesperson, but then coaches the salesperson on what they could have done better based on what it's seen other salespeople do. So as a human, you do what you do best, the machine sees what you do, compares it to what others do, and then coaches you to be better and remove friction from the entire process and amplifies the human. I think that's a great example of building Iron Man suits, not, um, uh, not Terminators. By the way, I talked to Gordon about uh, this, and we, we talk a lot about coaching networks because I'm a big believer in the thesis. Um, I said, I ended up explaining this to somebody about two weeks ago, is his first thesis 20 years ago, the enterprise SaaS was going to take over. I think it was right. I think we all agree with that. The first wave was vertical. I mean, so the first wave was horizontal. The second wave, which built upon the first, was vertical because you could really add value uh, to go domain-specific. The third wave, and I think the final wave, will be per personal, right? And, and it's built upon the vertical piece as well. Personal meaning I'm going to coach you how to be better at what you do, and I will coach you differently, but within that vertical domain. So they build upon each other. And uh, it's interesting to think about it going from horizontal to vertical to personal. And, and I think that, that's a helpful way of thinking about it. So this is a, this is a guy named uh, Jerry uh, Chin, who's at Greylock. He talks about systems of record, systems of intelligence, and systems of experience. Okay? Systems of record um, are the ones you've seen around quite a bit. They're the three-letter acronym folks. It captures data about what happened. It deals in facts. This is the CRM, the, ER, CRM, the ERP, the SCP, all these things. And it captured what happened and when and, and, and just the facts, right? Systems of intelligence transform facts into beliefs. Now, beliefs are not binary. They're not either true or false. I'm 95% certain this customer is going to churn. I'm 50% certain this customer is not going to pay back this loan, right? Whatever the certainty is, they, they have, uh, they're fuzzy, right? Predictions are just beliefs about the future, right? That, that's the only difference of... Um, if it's a belief about the future, it's a prediction. And then systems of engagement are the ones that ride shotgun with the end user while they do what they do, and they transform the facts and beliefs into measurable actions, right? That based on what I believe, based on the facts and the beliefs, I think you should do this right now. I think you should talk to them about a, you're doing a loan to a shipping industry, to a customer in the shipping industry. We have a wonderful foreign exchange service business at the bank. You should definitely bring in someone from the FX team to talk with them, right? That is transforming uh, facts and beliefs into actions. And then you measure that feedback like Agrawal talked about. Now, I think we're in the early days of this, and when you're in the early days of something, there's many ways of saying exactly the same thing because everybody sees the same thing or the shadow of the same thing, and no one knows what to call it. And if you look at this, you can see Greylock's chin calls it systems of records, systems of intelligence, systems of engagement. Satya Nadella got Microsoft, calls it perception, cognition, and action. Uh, Gordon Ritter calls it gathering, uh, comparing, and coaching. And then Agrawal calls it data prediction and action. They're all seeing the same thing, but calling it different things. Does that make sense? And that last mile, the translation of the insights into action is really where most things die, right? We've seen, I've seen lots of banks, big banks, do huge, hire a bunch of data scientists, and they do elaborate models that make predictions, and then uh, it goes nowhere. There's no pathway to deliver that, to put uh, what we talk about a lot of times with what Andy is, how do we put the smallest bit of information on exactly the right eyeballs at exactly the right time where it can have the most impact to the business, right? 
and that last, that last mile of AI, which is that delivery mechanism, is often missing. So Centaur Chess. Um, 1997, IBM's Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov in 20 moves. Um, he, this is a, probably can't see that video because of the light, not video, the, the background image because of the light, this is him walking away in disgust. He immediately demanded a rematch. IBM said no because their marketing uh, was done. <laughs> and, uh, and, then, and then they kind of shut down the whole thing. What's worth noting is um, current laptop chess programs are probably more powerful right now than Deep Blue. Um, your iPhone 10 is 30 times more powerful than Deep Blue, which is worth, just from a compute power standpoint, it's pretty amazing. After this, Gary Kasparov created this thing called Centaur Chess, or Freestyle Chess. And what that is, is now, instead of humans competing with machines or humans competing with humans, now you could have humans, you could have machines, or you could have human and machines working together uh, and competing. And what turned out was that it was a bit surprising. It wasn't surprising at all that the best machine beats the best human, because after Kasparov's loss, the best machine always beat the best human at chess. But what was really surprising is the human plus machine beat both the best machine and it beat the best human. So the human and machine pair actually ended up winning. And what's also more interesting, it wasn't the best human with the best machine. It was a moderately good human with a moderately good machine. Actually had three laptops, three machines, and a really good process for how to work together, right? And this is where, um, when you're building a human plus AI team, the hard part isn't the AI, it's not even the human, it's the plus. It's how do you put these things together um, to make them more effective? And how do you find a way of blending these two together? Now in freestyle chess, what the, it was a mid-level, because chess players are ranked grandmaster all the way down, it was a mid-level um, chess player, amateur chess player with three laptops. And when the laptops would agree, he would just do the, what they told him. When they disagreed, he would actually run some scenarios on the laptops um, and, and ask them more questions. So one of the things out of this is human, uh, Pablo Picasso said computers are useless, they only give you answers, which he was probably, he was mostly right on that. Computers are great at giving you answers, but humans are good at asking the right questions, right? So allowing those two to work together is really quite powerful and ultimately freestyle chess ended up proving that. Now again, there's many ways of saying the same thing. Um, when you look at that full, uh, uh, value chain, right, that I showed you, Gordon Ritter's and A.J. Agarwal's. Uh, Gartner calls this cognitive expert advisors, which is a very Gartner-y kind of thing to say. Accenture calls it citizen AI. Uh, Ritter calls it coaching networks. Deloitte calls it cognitive collaboration, um, is what they call that complete cycle. Again, I think multiple people are seeing the same thing, just calling it different things. But I, I like calling it applied insights or coaching. And we think about Andy as a platform for applied insights. We think about Precision Lender as applied banking insights, where you have to have the vertical piece to be able to apply insights. If I'm going to coach you how to play basketball, I have to know how to play basketball, right? I can't build a generic coaching platform. It has to have the vertical piece. But the key parts about coaching is it has to be contextual, meaning I have to understand the context. If it's basketball, if it's banking, it's what I have to understand that context. It has to be contemporaneous. I can't tell you a week from now you should have done something better a week ago. It has to be in the moment where, hey, um, if I'm coaching you on golf, hey, you're setting up wrong on the ball. You might want to change your stance right now to hit it better, right? That immediate feedback is something that, that humans react quite well to, so contemporaneous. 
It has to be constructive. I have this debate. I have to explain this to some higher-up folks at the bank sometimes. You notice with Andy, um, you, you didn't show you the whole application, but Andy only gives you suggestions when you click on Andy and, and, and they pop up, right? They're not always jumping in your face, you know? And, by the way, you'll notice when it says, here's all the way to make the deal work, they're all green. I could have changed two lines of code and instead of here's how the way to make the deal work and made them green, they could have been here's where you screwed this up and made them red. Functional requirements 100% met either way. The human impact is dramatically different, right? So understanding it has to be constructive because I'm trying to coach humans to a better place. Uh, individualized, how I coach the peewee league on how to uh, play basketball, the 11-year-old team versus how I coach um, Michael Jordan on how to play basketball is different. So you have to customize it to each individual based on what we think is going to be most helpful to them. Actionable. And then the last one is actionable. We try to make it so, hey, if I know what to do, you click it and we do it, right? I'm not, you know, walking you through something. If you say, yeah, I'd like to do that, you click it, we make it happen. And the last one is attributable, is that when we build skills inside of Andy, um, those skills, you can actually see how often they're shown, the impressions. We know how often they're clicked, the click-through rate. And because we're grounded to the outcome, because we have a really the perfect use case for this, uh, we know the net income and return on capital of every action that's taken, um, we can ground that to outcomes. So we can actually um, attribute, if you build 50 skills, here's the ones that are really being engaged with by the RMs, and here's the ones that are driving value at the bank. And that attribution is really, really helpful in terms of closing that learning loop. And again, I think it all comes back to uh, Doug Engelbart, right? How do you get to process C? How do you get better at getting better? How do you build a system that inherently forces you or gives you a pathway to get better at getting better? And so I end with this, which is the same thing he started with 50 years ago, which is when I first read this, I'm like, holy mackerel, this is what I'm, I just figured out two years ago that we should be doing. And something that I think is something we fight a lot, the punch card guys who use computers as calculators to generate reports, um, are assigning tasks to folks. What we, do is we, what we need to do is build tools, tools that allow us to not only improve what they're doing, but to build a, raise, the, raise what humans are capable of. So that's all I have. Thank you, guys. Fantastic. Well done. Great. Don't move. All right. Because there's questions. Right. Leonardo at the back. Oh. <laughs> you have the mic. I'll do it. Don't worry, everybody. <laughs> Look at these. Who got their 10,000 steps in this morning? Yeah. Uh, thanks for the talk. Uh, you talked about how difficult it is to get to the action part, and in your case, if you had time, enough time and money, would you be able to get an MD that didn't need a human operator, or do you see a human barrier that can't be transposed no matter your effort? So the question was, do, could I see it get to where there'd be no human in the loop? Yes. I think that's going to be, a for our particular use case, I think it'll be quite a long time. Uh, because there's, there is a human aspect of commercial lending in particular where you're dealing with a business owner. Uh, so one of the jokes, not jokes, it's the truisms about um, commercial lending is you're fundamentally selling a product no one wants, 
Like, no, you know, you talk about jobs to be done, no one wants a hole. I mean, no one wants a drill bit, they want a hole. And why do they want a hole? They want, no one wants a loan. No one wants indebtedness. No one wants their financials to be examined and underwritten and judged, right? All that's painful. You ask folks, you know, what, what, what do you want? What would you like better in loan? They say, I'd like it faster and cheaper. Well, of course, that just means they never want it at all. What they want is what the loan enables them to do. And what having a human being able to connect to that job to be done, that the reason you want to buy this piece of equipment, the reason you need a loan for this piece of equipment is so you can actually expand your business and get home to your family and see your kid's soccer game. That's the job they're hiring the loan to do. That's the job they're hiring the bank to give them. And so I think there'll be a long time where humans are in the loop on this. Uh, just like, by the way, computers, I think, are quite good at medical diagnosis. But however, I would not want to be told uh, my medical diagnosis by a machine. You know, th there, there's a human conversation that requires the things that a four-year-old or a 10-year-old are good at that it'll take forever to train a machine to be good at. And, and I think ultimately if you give me a, a good relationship manager who can fit the Iron Man suit, um, we'll always beat the Terminator. That, that's, I may be proven wrong many years down the road, uh, but I've watched a lot of Marvel movies with my kid, with Pete here, and it seems to always work out where Iron Man wins. So <laughs> that's all the proof I need. So. Hi, uh, great presentation, Carl. Um, if you. I may ask a rather dull question relating back earlier to the discussion about patents. Uh, is about, there a, about patents. Yeah, yep. is there a kind of land grab here where everyone's just going, this with AI? Um, you know, or is it even possible uh, people to patent ML models, or is that something that's not done? So I, I don't think so. I, I don't see many, uh, a lot of, it, a lot of the, the second phase of that, you know, systems of record, systems intelligence, a lot of that stuff, even the big guys have learned that the rate of improvement um, happens faster in the open source world. And by the way, uh, if you go read the ABCs from Engelbart, one of the things he talked about was process A, you got to have those and have good process A of how you do what you do. Process B can be internal to your company, but often the best source for process C, getting better at getting better, is community. And, and I think even he predicted the rise of open source before, because how do you increase the rate of getting better at getting better? If you open source those models, and even the biggest companies, Google and Microsoft and Facebook and all these folks, uh, folks are open sourcing their AI models because you get better at getting better faster. And so I think that's a trend that's going to happen. Now, uh, my personal belief, um, having in the U.S., it's actually black letter law that is not you can't patent a mathematical algorithm. Somehow people still do. And there's getting a, patent and, getting a patent and defending a patent are two different things. And ultimately what I think, how you build the competitive advantage is you get on a trajectory, you get the flywheel spinning where, so Waze doesn't need a patent, right? If I have more data flowing in that allows me to make better decisions, this is a, a concept I said, I spoke um, at the Microsoft Azure Client Advisory Board in 2010 when it was first starting and I said, uh, statistical significance is the economies of scale of the information age, right? If you get to a better answer, um, you, have a, you have an advantage which is very difficult to replicate. So once you build a system that can actually provide better results and better outputs, that's the defensible position. And building that ecosystem of that data flowing through there I think is, is the most defensible. I don't trust patents. I've, I've, I've 
been an expert witness of all these things for taking them down. And um, it's a little bit of a, it's a, you can spend a lot of money on lawyers that, um, and they'll gladly take it. You can patent anything you want. Um, whether or not you can defend it, you get to spend more money on lawyers later. So, <laughs> and I hate, I hate lawyers, except my partner who was a recovering lawyer. So, Can you um, tell us a little bit about the background of precision lenders? So, um, rather than um, AI, I think yep. one of the really interesting things um, about your organization is it's slightly buck the trend. Because <laughs> to be a fintech business, you need to have tons of cash and you have to have a really, really strong balance sheet, which yep. is why people have to take venture investment mm -hmm. to even get going. Discuss. Um, so there's always a reason, right? I mean, that back in the day to build a SaaS solution, you had to build your own data center, so you needed tons of cash. Then when Amazon and Azure and other things came out, well, you don't need tons of money to build a data center. You'd be a fool to do so, right? So. What do you need cash for now, right? And um, so you need money on the balance sheet, you need safety security, but also for a lot of uh, SaaS companies, that's why B2C SaaS companies are require, a, their customer acquisition costs are really high. And they, earlier they talked about marketing and throwing marketing dollars at it. Um, at some point, if you're in the venture business, you have, I used to be in the venture business, you have to have companies with strong growth trajectories with high capital needs or your business model disintegrates, right? Um, so you have to have high capital needs. So according to them, right? This is, <laughs> is a key part. Um, we started out, I was in the venture business. My business partner, Ken, was in the venture business. We were both successful. We had sold companies before. We started with the idea that we were never going to take venture money. The caricature was they're all assholes. You want nothing to do with any of them. And we you got because you were one. Because I knew them and I'd seen them. And, and they're not all, but, you know, the... I knew enough of them. And they, people used to ask me when I was in the venture business, what do you do? I said, well, I make small companies perform unnatural acts, right? It feels like, you know? And, and that's the name of the job, right? And so we decided we wouldn't do that. So we got to about, I want to say, four million of, four and a half million of recurring revenue. And we're about 15 employees. And as a founder, I'll tell you, you know, we generate cash throughout the life, you know? Um, uh, I went for, a, Ken and I both went for a while without any salary to get to that point. But we were generating cash. We were paying ourselves at that point. But we constantly felt that we were sizing the business, we were sizing the opportunity to the business, not sizing the business to the opportunity. And the thing that changed for me was when I went to the Christmas party and we had 17 people and their families come to the Christmas party and you think this would be like a wonderful thing. And Pelty, you probably know this feeling. I'm sure you do. But you, you see all the folks at the Christmas party with their families, and, and um, at first you're like, oh, that's great. What a wonderful bunch of folks. And then you go, holy shit. Um, if I screw up, uh, these, are the fo these are the folks who I'm going to inflict harm on, right? And then you get this dread. And, like, Christmas parties became like a horrible <laughs> event <laughs> for me. And that's when I know, okay, look, i got to solve this problem that we're not – so we actually had, we would say no to all the VCs. One kind of finally broke through our barrier and ended up talking to Ken. And we started, they're all assholes. We don't know what to do with them. So these guys aren't assholes. Okay, they seem to be pretty good folks. So we did half primary, half secondary. And the key to raising venture money is to never, ever need it. And then, uh, 
And then you get to control kind of who you pick and you pick your partners and you pick your partners to solve specific problems and you write down the problems that you're hiring them, the job you're hiring them to do. Um, I want to de-risk it to myself, to my family, to my employees, and to my customers, right? And so we did half primary, half secondary. Secondary, for those who don't know, means they bought shares from us and gave us cash, the founders. And they put, primary means they put cash on the balance sheet. Now, about a year later, uh, after we launched Andy, uh, we got a mentor of ours, um, introduced us to a guy named Justin Lafayette who runs Georgian Partners up in Toronto. And he says, George, Justin's the best board member I've ever had, and they have a strong AI focus connected to the University of Toronto. He's an entrepreneur. Um, he says, you need to meet Justin. And so I met Justin. I love Justin and his firm. I love, they love what we were doing. Uh, we connected, and then we did half primary, half secondary at a different, at a different point. Again, same goals. And then just last fall, uh, we reached another point where over 100 employees were expanding internationally. Um, and we had another friend at Insight Venture Partners, Richard Wells, who we had known from way back. Um, they loved what we were doing, wanted to be a part of it, so we did an all-secondary uh, round with them. And the, the goals for that, I was telling somebody at lunch, is, and I wrote this down, and I sent it to all the board members and our senior management and to Richard. I said, our objective with this is, number one, do no harm. We've got a great company, a great culture. We've got a great board. I'm not going to, I don't want to screw that up. Check. I know Richard. I've known him for a long time. And, and uh, Number two is I want to get everybody aligned that we believe we can make this into what it needs to be um, in, in, from the standpoint of growing it for the benefit of our current employees as well. And um, I want to get everybody aligned around that because one of the hard things is if you have multiple venture investors and they're misaligned, Somebody wants an exit in one year. Somebody wants it three years and all that. I've seen that. We said, everybody's going to get aligned around this. So we did that. And then the third piece was find us a partner who can uh, help us and see around corners who's been there and done that, who can bring stuff to bear to help us as we expand internationally and otherwise. And they checked all the boxes. And I sent it not just to my board. I sent it to Richard. Mm -hmm. I said, if you don't fit this bill, this probably is not going <laughs> to work out for us. And, and this is what I believe. Tell me if I'm wrong. And it turned out to be really, really good. So all those, even though we started with all of them are a-holes, uh, they're not. No. And being able to pick and choose um, the ones you want, but then be very explicit around what's the job I'm hiring them to do um, and what the expectations are. I think um, just like we, and by the way, every presentation I ever did, um, we had two tells, by the way. Um, so every presentation I ever did started with the, I would show them the values, right? And if any of them were like, fast forward through the values, I want to see the numbers. I'd be like, well, we're done. The, <laughs> the, the second thing was, our, our big tell was um, when they'd come in for a meeting with us, we typically have lunch or muffins or coffee or whatever. The ones who would get up and walk away and leave and catch their Uber to the airport and leave a mess for us to clean up, um, that was our tell that, um, <laughs> that is about them, you know, they're not helpful, which is one of our values. So it's one of the things is we met with, a, we met with Justin, and we love Justin. And Ken, I both of you, please pick up that cup. Please pick up that cup. Because <laughs> <laughs> that, that was one of our little tells that, we, you know, and he did. He picked it and took it in there, uh, put it in the dishwasher. And, and 
I think it's a good good tell. The other tell I'll tell you is if you ever if you're a technology company and you have a venture firm, and then they hire a third party to analyze your technology, um, hmm. that's a that's a negative tell. I would tell you, like if they don't know if they're not confident enough that they can make that call on their own, or if their LPs are not confident and they make the call on their own, you're in for a world of hurt. So, just another safety tip. Wow. One <laughs> final question. Gareth. Gareth. It was only Don. <laughs> um, you opened with the funny use piece, and you've just referred to it now. Um, and what I'm finding interesting at the moment is the number of places with companies using ML, where they're having to make internal values decisions about whether or not something is the right thing to do. And legislation is not going to help us here. Uh, so does that arise for you? And how do you handle it with your technical team? So um, we ha you have to have kind of good, we have our values, we have operating principles. And then we're working hard to build kind of the uh, Andy design guide. For, we've opened up for the banks to build their own. So we made the choice to make them green and make them positive and constructive. But we have an educational Thing incumbent upon us to, to design guides of how Andy doesn't seem, you know, in one minute helpful and friendly, and another minute like I'm gonna, you're gonna be fired. Um, and so we have to, it's incumbent on us to put that forth. The other piece is why I think having a human in the loop uh, mitigates a lot of that. So ultimately, Andy makes suggestions, but the human judgment has to come into play uh, on what actions are taken, and that gives us a, a huge mitigant so we can actually see. If we're offering actions that are not being taken, why? Um, if they're doing something different than what we're offering, why is that? Um, but, but I think for us, putting the human in the loop was our main guardrail against, against that sort of thing. But um, there's a great company called Integrate.ai. That's also a fellow Georgian partners uh, portfolio company. A lady named Catherine Hume, who you ought to have come speak. Mm. Um, she's amazing. She, they do a lot of work on ethical AI because they're doing more automated stuff without humans in the loop at all, all times. And they've done a lot of work around ethical AI and explainable AI and, and, and how that comes to be. If you'd like to leave us a review, the best place to do that is Apple Podcasts. Your glowing reviews are helping us reach more people and more businesses, which in turn gives us more insights, more inspiration and more great talks. If you're sitting there and thinking, I want to improve my company and these podcasts are amazing, why not check out businessofsoftware.org where you can find out about upcoming events including our new masterclasses and watch hundreds of videos from previous boss conferences. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.